One of my favorite thoughts in John chapter 9 is seeing Jesus Christ, the God-man, confront a man that was born blind and have compassion on him. That Jesus would zoom in in the life of a man that seemed insignificant in the era of those that perhaps prided themselves in their status quo, their religiosity, uh, education, you name it. That a man would be just begging outside of a temple and Jesus would zoom in on him and have interest, listen, in his life. I find it fascinating. I have. Every time I think about this passage, I think how God, the God of this universe, from beginning to end of this account, Jesus had an interest in a man that was insignificant to society. Not only the beginning and the end of the chapter of his life when he was healed, I mean doubly healed, he was physically healed, but also spiritually healed. We're going to see that today. But from the beginning of his very life, from when he was born. As a matter of fact, I'll even say before he was born. Remember the disciples found him and said uh, to, he, to Jesus, uh, whose sin is this that this man is born blind? Is it his sin or his parents? And Jesus simply said, no, this is not his sin nor his parents, but that the word of God may be glorified. So to me, this tells me that God had a plan and the life of this man before he was even born. And that's, to me, absolutely fascinating, encouraging, and wonderful. That every even single person in this room today, God knew you before you were born. God had a plan for you, a purpose for you. And all like sheep gone astray, everyone's turned to his own way. And even though everybody has gone to do their own thing, God in his mercy sent his son to come and redeem and gather those that he foreknew from eternity past. And to come down and seek them and love them and uh, gather them and, listen, not forsake them. Because what we see in the end of this passage is that the religious rulers and even his parents kind of forsook him. And you know what? When you stand for the truth and the testimony of Jesus Christ, to some degree, every single person faces rejection. But you know who comes in and steps in? Jesus Christ. Have a look at verse 35, if you will, in John chapter 9. Notice what the Bible says. As a matter of fact, we'll back it up just so you can see how they thrust him out. Verse 34, they answered and said unto him, after he gave him a Bible lesson, which was a blessing from the Old Testament scriptures, something that the, uh, they missed, they, and they say, they wast altogether born in sin, and dost thou teach us? They cast him out. And Jesus, look at this, heard that had cast him out. And when he had found him, he said unto him, dost thou believe on the Son of God? So Jesus heard what was taking place at this time that the religious rulers thrust him out of the synagogue, uh, rejected him, and to be rejected by the religious rulers or rejected by godly men if in the eyes of people. People thought that, you know, the Pharisees were righteous. 
This is why Jesus said to his disciples, unless your righteousness exceed that the righteousness of the Pharisees, you shall know wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. The, the Pharisees seemed righteous in the lives of the people. And uh, if they thrust him out, that means, whoa, this man is uh, perhaps a heretic, unrepentant sinner. And guess who hears about it? Jesus. And he went looking for him. It sounds like our great shepherd, doesn't it? Go and looking for his sheep, for my sheep hear my voice in the next chapter. And I know them and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Yeah, this is our saviour, this is the great shepherd that simply, uh, if you will, mediates. I mean, this is a classic example of Jesus living out his purpose. I mean, one of the things that we see in scripture is that you know, Jesus being a mediator. We see that in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Turn your Bibles quickly to that passage. Leave your finger in John chapter 9. But have a look what the Bible says about Jesus Christ being our mediator. What's a mediator? He's a go-in-between. He's one that stands in between two parties. And the Bible says very clearly in 1 Timothy chapter 4, who God, this is, our Savior, will have all men to be saved 2 Timothy 2.4 And come to the knowledge of the truth. Look at verse 5 and there is only one. There's one God and there's one what? Mediator between God and who? Man. The man Jesus Christ. And a mediator is one that who intervenes uh, or is the go-between go between two parties. And so Jesus Christ is no doubt the mediator who reconciles God with men and men with God. He's, the, he's our uh, peacemaker, if you will. We have peace with God, according to Romans chapter 8. Through who? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's by faith. We have peace with God. And Jesus is the only one that can give that peace. He's the only one that is the go-between. There's no, no, you can't find peace in anyone else or in anything else. No, no, religion, no religious system. Listen, no, uh, you know, religious upbringing. Uh, it's only found in Jesus Christ. Here's the go-between. And you have to ask the question then, why is men separated from God? Well, Isaiah says it very clearly. Your iniquities has separated you from God. Our iniquities, our sins, our rebellion, our, you know, lustful lifestyle separates us from God. We were born in iniquity. We were born in sin. We were born to rebel. We were born to simply stray. That's, that's our human nature. We don't have to go to university to go and learn how to stray. We just we do it by, by default. And so we needed a mediator. One that will mediate. One that will bring the hand of God and the hand of man together. And Jesus did that on the cross. Look at the next verse, verse 6. Who gave himself a what? A ransom for all to be testified in due time. A ransom is someone that was a substitute. Jesus was our substitute. When Jesus hung on that cross, he was taking our place. And then by doing so, he would experience the wrath of God. And by doing so, he would uh, simply pay the penalty of sin, which is death. And therefore, through Christ, we can come back to God and have peace with God. He's our mediator. But the Bible also says that Jesus is our advocate. Have a look at 1 John chapter 2. Notice 1 John chapter 2. I want you to see these terms, by the way, of introduction. 
We'll take it slow. Just have a look at these terms. Have a look at this. My little children, verse 1. These things write unto you that you sin not. It's talking to Christians. If any man sin, we have a what? Advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. Who's our advocate with the Father? Jesus Christ the righteous. One who pleads on another's cause before a judge. He stands before the judge and says, Hey, his penalty has been taken care of. He's our advocate. He's our defense. Jesus stands before God on our behalf. Because he was our sin bearer. The Bible he talks about in verse 2 that he's our propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. And uh, propitiation means that to appease, to satisfy. Jesus is the one that satisfied our debt, sin debt. He paid it with his blood. The atonement of Christ was the very thing that wiped our debt. Our sin debt. He paid it all. It is finished. On that cross he cried. It is finished. He's our advocate. And so that in Christ we can be forgiven only by the blood of Christ. Only through Jesus Christ we can have forgiveness of sins. No other, no one else. Only through this cross. And today it's probably something that you've heard time and time again, but we need to hear it because this is the foolishness to some. But to us, it's the power of God and the salvation. Amen. That mocker that was following me everywhere I went was laughing when I preached the cross. I'd go from one person to another person preaching the cross and how Jesus is our propitiation and our sin covering. And he would stand there and laugh in front of the people. I'd say, this is foolishness to you because you don't understand it, nor do you want to believe it. And the reason why, and we'll see later on, is because he doesn't care about the truth. He loves his sin, and he admittedly last night believed that his master was the bottle. Mm -hmm. But Jesus is our propitiation. No other sacrifice will do. You can try to earn your way to heaven by being a good person, which is one of the favorites among the world. You know, how would you get to heaven? Oh, I'm a very good person. Yeah, this is what we hear time and time again. But the truth of the matter is no one is good. No, not one. We all need a savior. And by the way, you know what motivated our savior to give his life a ransom for all? Have a look at 1 John chapter 4. Look at verse 9. In this was manifested the what? The love of God toward us because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Herein is love, not that we love God, but he loved us and he sent his son to be a what? A propitiation for our sins. The reason God sent his sinless son to die on an old rugged cross and suffer was because he loved you and he loved me. This is why. Motivated by love. God didn't have to send his son to die for us. But he did. Because God looked down and saw a world that was dead in their trespasses and sin. And God looked down and wanted to redeem men. Purchase them back. Because they were enslaved by sin and disobedience and death. And we're in bondage by the snares and the lies 
of the devil. He's the one that puts many... He did it right from the beginning, didn't he? Lied to Eve. Deceived her. She fell for it. And people are falling for the lies of the devil. Christians, professing Christians, are falling for the lies of the devil. Week in, week out, the devil tries to undermine the authority of Christ and the truth of God's word and the cross. And he does it through many, many ways. But second, thirdly, sorry, let me just also show you another wonderful, uh, significant name given to Christ that validates this account. Jesus is our intercessor. Have a look at Romans chapter 8. He intercedes for us. What a beautiful thing that is. One that intercedes is one that comes before God and entreats God. Listen, on our behalf, he pleads our cause. And you know why he can? Because God has lifted him up and exalted him to that place of honor. And so therefore Jesus pleads on our behalf. He intercedes on our behalf. He did with Peter, didn't he? He prayed for Peter. That Peter would be uh, simply recovered by the snares of the devil. Thank God we have a, a savior that intercedes for us. Our go-between, our advocate. One that comes to our defense. One that comes to our rescue. And you know what? He always comes at the right time. Praise his name. And I can testify to that. You say, he hasn't for me. Well, that's... Sorry, my friend. But you may be a, a Pharisee. Because Pharisees couldn't see that Jesus has come for them. And we're going to see that in a moment. Don't fall for the lies of the devil. And most people fall for the lies of the devil because they haven't received what they wished for or hoped for or their life's a mess. But come on, in reality, every single one of us in this room outside of Christ have messed up lives. Some more than others. And if you're going to live playing the victim all your life, you'll never see the victor that died on the cross. You'll be just entrenched with your own sin. My friends, you need to see Jesus for who he is. Our intercessor. The one that pleads before the throne of God. The, 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 the mercies of mercy. Yes, amen. The one that sprinkles the blood on the mercy seat. What a wonderful saviour we have. Don't forget that wonderful saviour. Notice the phrase uh, as we read this, Romans 8 verse 31. Who, what shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Amen. He that spared not his own son but delivered him up for us, how shall we not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Look at verse 34. Notice this phrase. Who is he that condemneth? Come on. Who is he that's going to condemn a child of God? The Pharisees that cast him out? I don't think so. Your parents that are fearful of being 
ostracized from society and religion and tradition to save face? No. All judgments committed to Christ. And if the one that gave his life for us, have a look. It is Christ that died, yet rather has risen, whom is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. He's the only one that can judge righteously. He's the only one that can simply cast people out for not believing or receiving Christ. Who's going to, if God be for us, who can be against us? I don't know about you, but having God is the majority, folks. I'm not looking for favour from religious people, from professing Christians that don't know the God of the Bible. I'm not looking fa- uh, favour from the heathen. I have favour with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And you have favour with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are accepted in the beloved. But yet we still seek the favour of a man. Why? We seek their approval. Why? We have a greater witness. And that's the witness of God. And that's the witness of the Holy Spirit of God that bears witness with our spirit that we are indeed the children of God and we can cry out, Abba, Father. What a blessing. What an absolute blessing. To condemn is to declare guilty and to be sentenced to death, but Jesus has taken our sentence of death in his own body. Our our, our sins were nailed on that tree, on that cross, and anyone that is in Christ and has the Spirit of God, there shall no condemnation be attributed to that person. That's in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. And uh, if we look at the account in John chapter 8, and we see that woman caught in adultery and the Pharisees try to tempt Christ and say, what do you think we should do with this woman? The law of Moses says we need to stone her. What do you say? And Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground. And then he said, anyone that hasn't has, have any sin, cast the, thought, the first stone. Come on, go ahead. Anyone here sinless, pick up the stone and throw it at her. You know who had the authority to condemn her? Jesus did. Because he was the only one amongst them that was sinless. The only one. The only one. And when he said this statement in John chapter 8, they drop the stones and they walk away. And he says, what are your accusers now? Have they condemned thee? And she said, no. He says, neither do I condemn thee. Look what he said. Go and sin some more. No, amens for that. Praise God. He says, go and sin no more. That's repentance, by the way, amen. We are saved to sin no more. But if we do sin, we have who? An advocate. Thank God for the advocate. But shall we sin that grace may abound? God forbid. No, we are dead to sin. We are dead to the old man. We are dead to our old life. We are risen with Christ. We must live a a victorious life. And we can. In Christ, we can. Who should separate us from the love of God? Can anything separate us? No. Nothing. 
And this is the very thing, my friend, as we sung today, that will revive us to live out the will of God. That the God-man will incarnate, become a baby, to die for you and to die for me. Tell me the old, old story, my friend. Tell me. Has it become... Has, how old is it? How old as it is, it's fresh to the believer's ear that is in love with the Lord every time he hears it. But it's stale to them that have unconfessed sin in their life and are living religious lives. May God deliver us from such condition. Amen. What do we see here? We see a high priest interject. Listen, intercede. One that is able to save to the uttermost. One that was high and lifted up, holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, higher than the heavens. We needeth not daily as those high priests to offer sacrifices. First for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. For this he did once when he offered up himself who knew no sin. We have a high priest that offered himself up once and for all. He's our intercessor. He's our mediator of the new covenant. He's our advocate. And he was to this adulterous woman and to this blind man that was healed. Individuals. People that he loved. You know, the blind man did not have to worry about anything when he was cast out. And by the way, I'd rather be in the hand of, of Christ than the hand of the religious rulers any day. And I believe so. With many of you today that you'd rather be in the royal throne of grace than wrapped up with the religious system of the world that only boast themselves among men. When you've come to meet Christ, my friend, you'll learn to only glory in the cross. The Apostle Paul said that. God forbid I should glory save, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I on the world. You know what he's saying? Because of the cross, I glory in it. How do you glory in something like that? Because he knew what it meant for him. And he says, this cross would cause me to be at enmity with the world. I'm done with it and the world's done with me. I'm no longer a friend of the world because of the cross of Christ. You don't have to be the... This man didn't have to have the approvals of the Pharisees who governed the world in that day almost. And almost the government. No, you don't have to be the, the friend of the world. Now, by the way, a friend of the world is the enemy of Christ. The enemy of God. He was in good hands. Look at verse 35. Notice his response to Jesus. Verse 36, he answered, he says, verse 35, and he said unto him, Doth, uh, Doest thou believe on the Son of God? And he answered, and he said, Who is the Lord that I might believe on him? Who is he? Who is the Lord? He, uh, uh, sorry, he said unto him, uh, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? Who is he? And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he, look at this, worshipped him. 
Allow me to point out two things about this. Number one, only God is to be worshipped. So what does that tell us? That Jesus was manifested in the flesh. He was the God-man. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in verse 14, the Word became flesh. Great is the mystery of godliness that God manifested in the flesh, and we beheld His glory. Jesus is the God-man that was worshipped. He was worshipped as soon as he entered into the world as a babe. He was worshipped throughout his life, his ministry. Angels worshipped him. Lepers worshipped him. Women worshipped him. The crowd worshipped him. The Pharisee says, tell your disciples to stop. He says, if they stop, the stones will worship him. Yeah. All creation worships him. And this man worshipped him as soon as he found out that he is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Holy One of God. He worshipped him. That was tremendous. Did Jesus refuse the worship? No. As a matter of fact, throughout his ministry, we see uh, several times that he never refused worship. Specifically with Thomas. Thomas called him Lord God. Never, never ever, not one time do we see that he rejected the notion of being God. As we look at scripture, we see other people that are uh, uh, mortal men refuse worship and thank God that they did. Uh, Peter, uh, sorry, Paul and Barnabas uh, refused worship. When they were in Lystra, uh, they healed the impotent man crippled from his mother's womb and the people cried out, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Paul and Barnabas says, Sirs, why do you do these things? We are just men, like passions, just like you. You need to turn from your vanities and turn to the living God. They refused worship. See, the Apostle John refused worship when God revealed to the Apostle John revelation after revelation after revelation. And right to the end of seeing and hearing all the things that will take place in the future, the Bible says that he, uh, the Apostle John fell down to worship the angel. And the angel said, See, do it, thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant of thy brethren, the prophets, and of them that keep the saying of this book. He says this, the angel of the Lord, worship God. Only God is to be worshipped. Thank God for people like this that channel their worship back to God. What about the three Jewish boys? When Nebuchadnezzar demanded worship, man, they would not bow for the life of them of the golden image. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that Nebuchadnezzar was enraged. That's what happens to governments today, by the way, when you don't worship them. They get enraged. And the three Jewish boys says, you can do what you want, I'm paraphrasing for the sake of time, but we will not bow down. And he threatened them with death and fire and the fiery furnace. I love their response. He says, If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. He will deliver us out of thy hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Only God is to be worshipped. Only God, the one God. If God will deliver us, and even if he doesn't deliver, deliver us, we want to let you know one thing, King. We're not worshipping you, or your gods, or the image. Do what you want. Only God is to be worshipped. 
You know what happens to people? Don't, don't channel worship back to God. People that have been mistakenly worshipped as gods, that they do not channel that favour back to God. You know what happens to them? What happened to Herod? What happened to King Herod when he stood in the book of Acts and he spoke in a way, the Bible says he was an orator, he spoke, the people wonder, says, he's a God. <laughs> and the Bible says he never, never gave God the glory. What happened to him? He, the Bible says immediately the angel of the Lord smote him and he was eating by worms. Immediately. And we're talking about a man that had, listen, no Christian character at all, zero, yet can speak eloquently to the very point that the people uh, looked at him as a god. How's that happen? And he never gave God the glory. And he was taken like that. What do you think happened to Lucifer? Who wanted to be like God and wanted to be worshipped like God? See you later. So we see in this account where he was worshipped, he received the worship. He never re rejected the worship because we, then we know that he is God. Second of all, not only we see that Jesus is God because he received the worship, but second of all, he worshipped him. Listen, all true believers worship God. It is absolutely fascinating today, fascinating today for me to see. More sad, I should say, not fascinating. More sad, I should say. That Christians that profess that they know Jesus and believe in Jesus do not worship him like he should be worshipped. Singing five hymns on a Sunday morning is part of worship. But it's not full worship. Anybody in their religion has a sense of worship to their God. They pray, they do their rituals, they do their little uh, you know, traditional ordinances in their temple, in their mosque, and in their church. Their religion demands it. I was an altar boy at one stage. I thought I was worshipping God. What's true worship? True worship is when you bow to the Lord of glory and you follow him. He becomes the Lord of your life. Someone once said this, if Jesus is not Lord of all, then he's not Lord at all. Religion gives part of your life. God demands all of your life. Jesus, you come to him, you worship him with all your whole heart. It's all or nothing. The religious rulers gave here and there and this and that and, and, the, and, and the modern Christianity today, what we see, the little bits and pieces here and there, and they thought they, they, they come to church and thinking they've done God a favor. They gave some dollars here and there, and they think they, they worship God. They jumped up and down and sung, and they think they've worshiped God. Now that. Worship, listen, singing has a part of it, but your life demands to follow the Lord all your life, your whole life. You follow and you worship God. There are people that were healed. They just wanted to go after Jesus. Jesus says, go tell your family and friends what God has done in your life. They wanted to follow him. The 10 lepers, one of them came back to worship and give God glory, fell at his feet. Jesus says, where's the other nine? Weren't there 10 cleansed? 
There are people that come and encounter with Jesus Christ, but not all of them are worshippers of God. They bear the name Jesus, but they do not follow him with their whole heart at all. They give bits and pieces. We need to come and worship God with our life. And so I'm not going to give you a part of me or bits and pieces there. I want to give you all of me. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. God wants first place in your life. He doesn't want our crumbs. I determined the beginning of my life when I first got saved. Lived by two principles. It was to put God first and not compromise. By God's grace, he helped me leave off the love of my life to follow God. It was the hardest thing to do. And ever since then, challenge after challenge, am I going to let go and love God? Let go and love God. Everything that got in the way, everything that was just, you know, uh, taking my heart away, am I going to let go and let God love God? I come to the point of this time being challenged with some things and I'm not about to drop the ball. No. Full allegiance to God. Full, not half, not quarter, not 5%, 100%. Your whole heart, God wants you to love Him with your whole heart, your whole soul, your strength, your whole being, every part of you. That means He has. You know, if, you know what Solomon said to his son? He says, my son, give me my heart. Give me thy heart and let thy eyes observe my ways. If God has your heart, he has everything about you. Everything. Everything. Worshipped him. To worship means to revere, to honour, to adore, to show worth. Listen, to idolise. It's amazing in 1 John chapter 5 how John says, He that had the Son had life. He that had not the Son of God had not life. He's encouraging them with eternal security and the assurance that you may know that you have eternal life. Not hope so. One day we'll see. But you could know. And then all of a sudden he closes the book by saying, Keep yourself from idols. <laughs> Just randomly. Keep yourself from idols. Beloved. Children. Why? Because he knows that throughout our Christian life things are trying to take our worship and we show worth to this and worth to this and worth to this. And before we know it, we're not worshipping and showing worth to God. Everything else should be second, third, fourth. He needs to be first. That's true worship. With all our hearts. It's to come bowing before him. It's to give God praise, give glory. Jesus says, where your what? Where your heart is. What are you going to find? Where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. What do you treasure? Who do you treasure? What do you value? Who do you treasure, the Church of Ephesus? You treasure the ministry more than the master that you've left your first love? It can happen, can't it? Even in ministry. Who do you treasure? Creation or the creator? Who do you treasure? Who do you value? What's your worth? Well, when you see the God of heaven that gave you life and eternal life, and without him you have no life, how can you not but worship him? We are made to worship. Listen, the Bible says all things were created by him and listen, for him. Brethren, you and I were created for God. 
That's the theme of our life. We were created to live our lives with God in the center of it and God before us and that would follow him and worship him. Abraham built an altar everywhere he went to worship God. Abraham was a friend of God. He communed with God. True worship is to follow God and to, and to have our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of all, the Lord of glory. There's no sacrifice too small or too big. We just at times need to say, Lord, give us the grace. Give us the grace to follow you. I love verse 39. We see Jesus state one of his main reasons for his coming. One of the main reasons for his coming. I mean, if you look at scripture, we see several reasons for Jesus' coming. Uh, the Bible says that Jesus came to deliver us from sin. Uh, it's very clear, 1 John 3, 5. And, and he, ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins. Uh, second of all, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. The Bible says in 1 John 3, 8, He that committeth sin is of the devil. For the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he may destroy the works of the devil. Thirdly, Jesus came to declare the truth. When Jesus stood in trial before Pilate, he said to Pilate very clearly, for this cause have I come. What cause? He says, I've come and into the world that I may bear witness unto the truth. But in this passage, we see that Jesus came, listen, we can't miss it, to deal with believers and non-believers alike. Have a look. Verse 39, he said, For judgment I have come into the world, that they which see not might see. And they which see might be what? Made blind. Twofold. Jesus came to deal with believers and non-believers alike. The same light, someone once said, that leads one person to life can also blind another person to darkness. And these people who know that they are spiritually blind and see their sin for what it is will have their spiritual eyes open. But the opposite is true. The people that think that they are spiritual, righteous and good and do not see their sin for what it is will be eternally blind and thrust into utter darkness. The difference between the two is not only seeing your sin for what it is, but seeing the Savior for who he is. That's the difference. In John chapter 5, Jesus said, And you will not come to me that ye may have life. And he says in John chapter 8, For if ye believe that I, uh, that I am, I am he, you should, if ye believe not that I am he, you should die in your sins. So it's not only being convicted of our seeing sin and seeing our sin for what it is, it's seeing the Savior for who He is. You see, many people can see their sin for what it is, but they do not repent. They do not come to Christ. Hence, in John chapter 8, in John chapter 8, the Bible says they were convicted in their conscience and they dropped the stones and they walked away. 
But conviction is not conversion. They were convicted but not converted. I mean, you go out on the street today and you tell them, are you a sinner? And they say, absolutely, I love it. Yeah, they, they pride, it's Romans chapter 1. They take pleasure in doing evil. They take pleasure. Being convicted of your sin and admitting that you're a sinner is not enough. You must see the Savior for who he is. Being convicted or convinced of your sin is absolutely essential. There's no doubt about that. But it's not enough. He said very clearly in this passage, I have come into the world for what? For judgment I have come. Well, hang on a minute. Doesn't that contradict John chapter 3? For God sent not his son in the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him, what? Might be saved? So what's going on? There seems to be a contradiction. Well, not when you read the next verse, verse 18. He that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already. Because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Believing is essential. Being convicted of your sin is essential. But believing on the Lord Jesus Christ is essential. But they would not come. Why? Because they love darkness more than the light. And they don't want to be exposed. They don't want to see. They, don't want, they, don't, they love, listen, I've always said it. They love their sin more than the Savior. When, G, uh, when the Apostle Paul stood in front of King Agrippa and he testified of his uh, testimony, what did King Agrippa say? You almost persuaded me to be a Christian, Paul. Oh, he almost. He was on, you know, some people say, I think it was Spurgeon, that his hand was on the doorknob of heaven. It's not enough. Believing on Christ is essential. Knowing the facts is not enough. The devil knows the facts. His faith in Christ is the key. He, said, he answered and he said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. And he said, Lord... I believe. Lord, I believe. This is not just any kind of belief here. This is he believed to follow. I mean, in the beginning in John chapter 9 verse 11, you should see the, the progression of light that this man received. And if you receive light, which God shows you, God gives you more light. In John chapter 9, verse 11, he, he just said, oh, there's a man called Jesus. In John chapter 9, verse 17, he called him a prophet. In John chapter 9, verse 33, a man from God. In John chapter 9, verse 27, a master, teacher. He realized that he said to them, do you also want to be his disciple? In John chapter... Uh, 9 verse 37, he recognizes he's the Son of God, the Messiah. And in John chapter 9 verse 38, he's the God-man because he worshipped him. You see, it was progressional. He received the light that God gave him and God gave him more light in order for him to believe. You know, God reveals himself in several ways. The light of creation and for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. Why? That they are without excuse. 
God has given us the light of our conscience. When we come before the law, or the law is even written in our hearts, God lets us know that we've done wrong. Where do we get this moral compass from? God, conscience. And the word of God intensifies it. The, the, the law of God intensifies it. The, the word of God just really just nails it in there. It's already there. It just hammers it down, exposes us. The light of creation, you receive that, you receive the light of conscience. Listen, the light of Christ. Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonas, that flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father which is in heaven. I believe there's a Father in heaven that loves humanity, that he will let him know the truth about Christ and who he is. You know what? He made him, oh, he made him so real to me 18 years ago. A friend of mine was preaching the gospel and the simple gospel, the power of God and the salvation. He never really had a Bible in hand. He was just preaching Christ. And the heavenly Father, through the Spirit of God, made Christ known to me that day. Amen. It's almost like I could see him and touch him. Who does that? It's the miracle work of God that does that. You just have to preach the gospel and God will use the gospel and the heart of people. It's the simple gospel. It's the power of God and the salvation. How should they hear without a preacher? Oh, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach good tidings. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's what we need today. We need someone... Uh, one said this, Spurgeon said, he says, we ought not to suffer any person to perish for the lack of knowing the gospel. We cannot give men eyes, but we can give them light. <laughs> Amen. What's the light? The gospel, my friends. The cross. You missed this, man. You missed it. You missed it. The cross of Christ being declared it's the foolishness of preaching preaching the cross because here we see our sinless savior god man suffer for us dressed in his blood six hours of pain and shame he endured on that cross for our sin and he said it many times to his disciples that he would go and suffer and he would be delivered in the hands of the pharisees and suffer but he'll be risen again do you believe that? Do you believe the gospel? The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, your only hope? you believe that? Have you come to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior? With all your heart? Are you a worshiper of God? God working in your life? Are you following Him as Lord? Unlike the Pharisees. You think Judas... Was able to see his sin? Absolutely. The Bible says when he saw Jesus condemned, he actually ran to the Pharisees and threw the money back at them. And he says, I have betrayed innocent blood. But what did he do after that? He hung himself. Stricken with guilt. You know why? Because he went to the wrong priest. He should have gone to the high priest. But you see, what happened? He rejected the light that God gave him time and time and time and time again. And you would have thought Judas was a disciple indeed because the disciples were actually thrown away with the fact he followed Jesus, humanly speaking. But it was like what Isaiah prophesied. And Jesus confirmed to the Pharisees. These people honor me with their what? 
lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Anyone can say, I believe in Jesus. Judas seemed to believe in Jesus, but did he? No. No. So what should be the result of a person realizing that they are sinful in need of a savior? What's the end result? What's the proof? I want you to turn to Mark and we're done. Mark chapter 12. I want you to see this. I will read a couple of verses right at the end of John chapter 9 to conclude, but I want you to see this. Mark chapter 12. Look at verse 28. And one of the scribes came, having heard them reasoning together, and perceiving that he answered well, asked him, Which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, The first of all, the commandment is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. This is the first commandment, and the second is like, namely this, Love, uh, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And there's none other commandments greater than these. Look at what he said now. The scribe said unto him, Well, master, thou hast said the truth. For there is one God, and there is none other but he. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, with all the strength, and to love his neighbor as himself is more than the whole burnt offering and sacrifices. Notice this. And when Jesus saw that he answered discreetly, he said unto him, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. And no man after that durst ask him any question. Well, there you go right there. What does that tell us? He answered correctly. He says, you're very close. You're very, very close to the kingdom of God, but you're not there yet. You're not there yet. You know, knowing the doctrines of the faith and knowing this Bible is not enough. You know how many people know this book? Cover to cover, back to front. The devil knows this book. Not enough. What's the end result of our salvation? What does our salvation lead us to? To love God supremely. If you claim to know the Lord as your Savior and you don't love Him by the life that you live, what salvation do you have? Because Jesus said, if you love me, you keep my words. This is keeping this book is the great divider between the foolish man and the wise man. The foolish man built his house. And the wise man built his house. But what was the difference? One built it on the sand, and the other built it on the rock. And the difference was hearing the word of God and obeying it. 
A lot of people hear, but they don't live it. They don't go forth and obey it. A lot of preachers preach, preach this book, but they don't practice what they preach. They don't practice what they preach. You know what Jesus calls that, by the way? Hypocrisy. May God help us not to be like the hypocrites. You know, Jesus never said to his disciples, you know, you're hypocrites. He said to the Pharisees, you're hypocrites. But Jesus said to the disciples, don't be like the hypocrites. Don't be like them. Don't be like them. Don't be the... No. May God help us not to be like these Pharisees, these unbelieving, Christ-denying, truth-hating Pharisees. Look at verse 40, John 9 verse 40. And some of the Pharisees which were with him heard these words and said unto him, Are we blind also? Why is he dropping? I thought you'd just cast him out. Did you follow him now? What do you want from him? He was speaking to the man that was healed. He wasn't speaking to the Pharisees. Oh, yeah, 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 but we know he's talking about us. How did you know he's talking about you? Was there some truth that you know and understand, but you just don't want to believe? Don't, don't think the, the Pharisees were silly. <laughs> hey, the devil's cunning. You think the devil's silly? In a, in, in, he's, he's foolish, absolutely, in the respect that he rejects God. Yeah, absolutely, anybody that rejects God is foolish. But they're cunning. Are we blind also? I mean, you're not blind, you can see. How did you know the spiritual significance here? And then notice verse 41, Jesus said unto them, If ye were blind, ye should have no sin. But now ye say, we see, therefore your sin remaineth. That's the divider. You know, the sick doesn't need a doctor, does he? The sick doesn't need a physician. Jesus came for the sick. Jesus came for the blind. And by the way, that disposition needs to be maintained. Even though we see spiritually, we come to the Lord and we say that through the, by God's grace and the Holy Spirit, Lord, keep opening my eyes. Allow me to see wondrous truths from thy law. Help me and direct my step. Salvation is the beginning, but it's not the end. God wants to do so much in our lives. And you know what it is? It's honoring him and glorifying him in the life that we live. And that is, listen, that is a process that is absolutely being attacked by the world. Walk in the spirit so you don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. And you see the fruits of the spirit there? Love, peace, joy, long-suffering, temperance, goodness, meekness. All these beautiful things that help us follow after Christ. And God continues to reveal things to us. And as he reveals them to us, we grow and we disperse. And we continue to say, Lord, give me more that I may, to, to whom much is given, much is required. But once we get to the point of, yep, that's it, we know it all. We're done, we're finished. We, 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 no, God wants to show you more. He wants to do more in your life. He wants to lead you along and he wants to guide you. Don't be like those Pharisees that come to the point of their life where they're not teachable. 
They cannot be taught anymore. And I'm not talking about teachers and preachers. I'm not talking about parents. I'm talking about the greatest teacher in their life called the Holy Spirit of God. You know why? Because they've taken the place of him. May God help every single one of us not to take the place of God in our lives, but to be willing to be sensitive to the Spirit of God leading us along and saying, God, I want to see more of thy glory. Lead me along. I want to see more of Christ. I want to love you more. I'll be willing to not only say die like Peter did, but I'll be willing to do it by your grace and by your power. Anyone that has an encounter with Christ has no doubt their life's changed. No doubt. There's no doubt. Every, anyone, doesn't, a believer and non-believer, for this cause, Jesus has come. It's to expose, you know, those Pharisees, those religious buff professing people, and to simply uh, lead those that are hurting, those that are uh, broken, those that are bound, those that are burdened, and come unto Christ and yoke up with him and learn from him. And they stay humble, and God has them under his mighty hand, and he leads them along, and he leads them along, and he leads them along. You know, Jesus will never forsake his own. Never! For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth everyone in whom he receiveth. God will run after them. God will keep them. God will continue to mold them and make them and break them and, and work in their life. You guarantee you, as a believer, God will not leave you alone. But you need to be yielded in his hands. Say, God, continue to show me. Continue to break me. Continue to mold me. Continue to use me. Salvation is just the beginning. Our eyes open to the truth is just the beginning. It's not the end. You say how? Read John chapter 10 and you'll see. You'll see. Yep. It's, it's, look, listen. Salvation is more than just saying a sinner's prayer in the corner and saying, I'm going to heaven when I die. It's more than that, my friend. How many people say this? But their life is not worshipping God. May God help us not to be like those Pharisees who are blind bats and have a cheap profession that can't even save an ant. May God help us. Let's pray.